Good afternoon. I'm Prem Paul, Vice Chancellor for Research and Economic Development. Thank you for joining us today for our Nebraska lecture, which is part of the Chancellor's Distinguished Lecture Series. The Nebraska lectures are an interdisciplinary lecture series designed to foster communication among students and faculty in different academic areas and among the people of Lincoln and Nebraska. The Nebraska lectures are sponsored by the UNL Research Council in cooperation with the Office of the Chancellor and the Office of the Research and Economic Development. So you're probably wondering, what is this Research Council? The Research Council is great. It's made up of faculty from across many disciplines at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. The Council solicits nominations for Nebraska lectures from our faculty on the basis of major recent accomplishments and the lecturer's ability to explain their work to a multidisciplinary audience. Selection as a Nebraska lecturer represents the highest recognition the Council can bestow upon an individual faculty member. The Research Council also has money. <laughs> and they give several competitive awards and programs designed to encourage and enhance research, creative, and scholarly activities for all UNL faculty. A few words about today's format. Uh, following uh, Dr. Jacobs' lecture, Dr. Tala Awada, Chair of the Research Council and Associate Professor in the School of Natural Resources, will moderate a question and answer session. After that discussion, we will move to the reception in the Regency Suite, which is across the hall. I also want to introduce our two sign language interpreters for today's lectures, Kelly Breckenhoff and Connie Herndon. Thank you both for your assistance. So please join me in thanking them. At this time, it is my honor and pleasure to introduce our chancellor, who was, as you know, Midlander of the Year, the Omaha World Herald paper. But more than that, he has really been a tremendous leader, not only for UNL, but, but the great state of Nebraska and nationally. So please join me in welcoming uh, Chancellor Perlman. Well, thank you, Prem. Uh, well, this is the happiest occasion I've had uh, the privilege to participate in today, <laughs> and, I, and I appreciate it. Uh, I needed it. Um, I want to welcome you also to the Spring Nebraska Lecture, first in the Chancellor's Distinguished Lecture Series for 2011. It's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Margaret Jacobs, Professor of History and Director of Women's and Gender Studies. Dr. Jacobs won the 2010 Bancroft Prize, which is among the most prestigious awards in the field of American history writing. She recently was named a Chancellor's Professor, which recognizes her efforts in making UNL internationally recognized in the areas of comparative history, indigenous history, and women and gender studies. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the United States, Australia, and Canada practiced a reprehensible behavior, removing indigenous, native, aboriginal children from their birth families and moving them to schools under the guise of education and assimilation. These children were brutally separated from families and forced to abandon their language and customs 
in efforts to give them supposedly greater economic opportunities. Conducted in the name of reform and compassion, these practices in fact cause irreparable personal harm to the children and their families and permanently damage native cultures by separating generations from their ancestral heritage in ways that were impossible to restore. In today's lecture, Dr. Jacobs will draw on research that informed her Bancroft Prize winning book, White Mother to a Dark Race, Settler Colonism, Maternalism, and the Removal of Indigenous Children in the American West and Australia, 1880 to 1940, published by the University of Nebraska Press. She will explain the origins, consequences, and legacies of indigenous child removal in the US and Australia. She has titled today's lecture, A Battle for the Children, Indigenous Child Removal in the United States and Australia from 1880 to 1940. Please join me in welcoming our own Dr. Margaret Jacobs. going to do something really um, cool here. Watch this. <laughs> so um, thank you very much, uh, Vice Chancellor Paul and Chancellor Perlman and all those who've made this lecture possible today. Um, I have to tell you it was a really wonderful surprise and a great honor to win the Bancroft Prize last year and to travel to uh, Columbia University for the awards ceremony. But really, and I mean this very sincerely, it's the ongoing support of friends and family here, uh, students and uh, colleagues who um, make this uh, the most meaningful and for whom I'm most grateful. So I want to thank all of you for attending today. And I want to particularly welcome those uh, who came down here, I think about a two and a half, three hour drive from Winnebago Nation. So thank you uh, for all of you for coming. It's, it's a real honor, too, to be able to share with you this afternoon a, a very small section from this very long, uh, thick book um, that took about a decade of my life. When she was growing up, Rose recalls, the agents were sending out police on horseback to locate children to enroll in school. The stories we heard frightened us. I guess some children were snatched up and hauled over there because the policemen came across them while they were out herding, hauling water, or doing other things for the family. So we started to hide ourselves in different places whenever we saw strangers coming toward where we were living. Iris remembers a similar story in her community. A sister would visit the mission every month or so in a shiny black car with two other officials and always leave with one or two of the children. We wised up. Each time that car pulled into the mission, our aunties, uncles, and grandparents would warn the older children, and they grabbed the little ones and ran into the scrub. Though adults in Rose's and Iris's communities tried to hide the children, the authorities eventually apprehended many of them and spirited them away to schools, missions, and other institutions. I shed tears when I remember how those children were ripped from their families, shoved into that car, and driven away, Iris writes. The distraught mothers would be powerless and screaming, don't take my baby. Although the stories of these two women, each with such a vivid, floral, spring-like name, 
sound remarkably and disturbingly similar. They took place in almost opposite corners of the world in the early 20th century. Rose Mitchell, or tall woman, of the Navajo tribe grew up in northeastern Arizona, while Iris Burgoyne, an Aboriginal woman of the Mirning Kokatha group, came of age in South Australia. Despite being poles apart, Rose and Iris, as well as their indigenous communities, shared a common experience at the hands of governmental authorities and the missionaries who carried out their bidding. That is, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, in both the United States and Australia, government officials developed and carried out policies of indigenous child removal. Declaring that they were rescuing children, officials in both countries touted their policies as benevolent advances from earlier policies of often violent dispossession. Yet, as Rose's and Iris's stories make clear, the implementation of these policies had much in common with the brutality of each, each nation's past colonial history. Now, however, the site of conflict moved to the most intimate levels of family life. Now, government authorities and indigenous people battled over children. Where would Indian and Aboriginal children grow up? What would they learn? And who would guide their upbringing? Much was at stake in this battle, for without their children, indigenous people could not sustain their communities and cultures. In the United States, the removal of Indian children as a systematic state policy began in earnest when the federal government adopted an assimilation policy in the 1880s. Many influential reformers agitated for this new policy, including the famed author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, Harriet Beecher Stowe. She declared, we have tried fighting and killing the Indians and gained little by it. We have tried feeding them as paupers in their savage state, and the result has been dishonest contractors and invitation and provocation to war. Suppose we try education. Might not the money now constantly spent on armies, forts, and frontiers be better invested in educating young men who shall return and teach their people to live like civilized beings? Following Stowe's logic, the United States promoted boarding schools for American Indian children, both boys and girls, modeled on Richard Henry Pratt's Carlisle Institute or Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania. By 1902, the government had established 154 boarding schools and an equal number of schools for about 21,500 Native American children. Officials sought to remove every Indian child to a boarding school for a period of at least three years. From the late 1860s, Australian colonies adopted policies of protection toward Aboriginal peoples. Authorities made much of distinctions between so-called full-blood Aboriginals and half-castes, people of part Aboriginal heritage. Most white Australians believe that full-blood Aboriginals were doomed to extinction and the government could but provide a comfortable last resting place for them on isolated reserves. On the other hand, most white Australians perceived half-castes who were not dying out, but actually increasing in numbers, 
to be a real threat to the social order. Government officials recommended that half-caste children could be gradually absorbed into the white population by removing them from Aboriginal communities. By 1911, every Australian state had adopted special legislation enabling the forcible removal of Aboriginal children to homes and missions. Scholars in the United States and Australia have treated these histories of indigenous children in quite different ways. In the United States, historians have focused on the boarding schools and studied them as an aspect of Indian education. While some have portrayed them as a well-intentioned if misguided effort, others have emphasized the oppressive nature of the schools, even dubbing their mission education for extinction. More recently, scholars have revealed a wide variety of children's experiences in the schools, from abuse and trauma to adaptation and resiliency. Australian scholars have concentrated more on the process by which Aboriginal children were removed from their families and communities, rather than on the institutions themselves. By calling such children the stolen generations, Australian scholars have created a very powerful framework for understanding the impact of this policy on indigenous communities. When I first began my comparative research in 1998, the Australian scholarship on the stolen generations inspired me to examine Indian boarding schools in a new way. As I studied how Indian children came to be within the boarding schools, I found astonishing parallels with the Australian Aboriginal experience. Now certainly not all Indian children's journeys to the boarding schools were forced. And the phrase stolen generations glosses over a variety of ways by which Abor Aboriginal children came to be within institutions. Moreover, children did not experience unrelenting oppression in the institutions. They found means to seize what opportunities they could and to create new communities. Over time, too, Many Indian families claimed the boarding schools as their own and turned them to their own purposes. Yet, this should not lead us to conclude that these policies were benign or for the best. At their core, both the United States and Australian policies undermined indigenous families and communities. As administrators began to implement their new policies, Indigenous families in the United States and Australia rarely sent their children to institutions voluntarily. Authorities had to engage in intense recruitment efforts, and if those failed, they often resorted to trickery, threats, withholding of rations, bribes, or the use of force. Australian Aboriginal memoirs and oral histories, as well as the archival record, are full of haunting and poignant stories of removal. Consider the experience of Margaret Tucker, one of the first Aboriginal people to write of the experience of child removal. One day, as 13-year-old Margaret attended the mission school in Coomaragunja, an Aboriginal settlement along the Murray River, a motor car pulled up outside the school. A policeman and another official beckoned the school teachers outside and then came to dismiss all the children except Margaret, her 11-year-old sister May, 
and another 11-year-old girl. The three girls began to cry, and soon a crowd of 40 or 50 Aboriginal women and elderly men gathered outside the school building. When the missionary demanded that the three girls go with the police, the Aboriginal women were very angry and suddenly were all talking at once. The missionary's wife tried to stall the inevitable departure of the girls until Tucker's mother, Teresa Clements, could be summoned from her job as a domestic servant in a white woman's home nearby. When Tucker's mother did arrive on the scene, having run a mile and a half, Margaret thought, everything will be all right now. Mom won't let us go. Indeed, her mother did confront the police officer. She said fiercely, they are my children and they are not going away with you. Yet Teresa Clemens could not protect her daughters. Margaret remembers, the policeman patted his handcuffs, which were in a leather case on his belt, and which May and I thought was a revolver. Mrs. Clements, he said, I'll have to use this if you do not let us take these children now. Thinking that the policeman would shoot mother because she was trying to stop him, we screamed, we'll go with him, mum, we'll go. The authorities did allow Mrs. Clements to accompany her two daughters as far as the police station in Daniloquin. But after entering the station, Mrs. Clements heard a car motor start up outside. When she rushed out of the station, the vehicle was pulling away with her daughters in it. Margaret recalls, my last memory of her for many years was her waving pathetically as we waved back and called out goodbye to her but we were too far away for her to hear us. Because Australian state governments passed explicit state legislating, leg legislation that transferred guardianship of all Aboriginal children to the state, officials there enjoyed wide latitude in apprehending Aboriginal children like Margaret Tucker. And like Teresa Clements, their parents could do little to stop it. In the United States, authorities never enjoyed this degree of power and authority over Indian peoples, and laws were more ambiguous. Yet officials could not fill the boarding schools, at least initially, without resort to some comparably brutal methods. To be sure, many of the idealistic reformers connected with the boarding schools preferred persuasion and were sometimes adept at convincing Indian people to send their children to school, often by telling them that their children would gain the ability to advocate for Indian rights through an education. However, many Indian people soon became disillusioned with the promises of the boarding schools, especially when they proved to be quite deadly. For example, the Spokane leader, Lot, had willingly sent many of his own children and his tribe's children to be educated in the East. Yet, out of 21 Spokane children he had sent to school, 16 had died. To add insult to injury, the school officials did not send the children home to be buried. They treated my people as though they were dogs, Lot protested. He pleaded with the government to establish a day school on the reservation. The Bureau of Indian Affairs did not respond for three years. Then they proposed building a school at a remote distance from the center of the reservation. 
My people are now scared, Lot asserted. They do not want to send their children so far away to school. To prevent their children from being taken away, many Indian mothers took desperate measures. Marietta Wetherill, a white trader who lived on the Navajo reservation, witnessed a number of Navajo mothers digging a trench and laying their children in it. They covered the children's faces with wool and stuck oat or wheat straws from the barn in their mouths and covered them with sand, Wetherill recalled. The children had their instructions before the police came. Among the Mescalero Apaches in New Mexico, according to the government agent there, every possible expedient was resorted to by the women to keep their children from school. They would brazenly deny having children, despite the evidence of the accurate census rolls and the ticket on which they had for years drawn rations. Children were hidden out in the bushes, drugs were given them to unfit them for school, Bodily infirmities were simulated, and some parents absolutely refused to bring their children in, the agent complained. When they could not compel Indian people to send their children to boarding schools, many officials re resorted to some very cruel means to achieve their ends. One common method was to withhold rations, which had been guaranteed by treaty to replace the traditional means of subsistence of Indian people when they had moved on to reservations. At the Mescalero Apache Reservation in the 1890s, the agent boasted that the deprivation of supplies and the arrest of the old women soon worked a change. Willing or unwilling, every child five years of age was forced into school. Still, in many cases, Indian families refused to send their children off to a distant school. Superintendent of Indian Education Estelle Real noted in 1899 that so strong is the opposition to this that in many cases Indians have held out against it until their families were on the verge of starvation. When threats or bribes did not work, many agents enlisted military or police forces, sometimes made up of Nav uh, native peoples themselves, to physically compel Indian families to comply. Marietta Wetherill was shocked that the government agent needed police to get the children to go to school and that he received $5 for each child he procured. They didn't tell Uncle Sam they used force, Wetherill asserts. I've seen those police pull the children away from their mothers. They just screamed and cried. Because many indigenous people resisted the removal of their children, Authorities often claimed that Indians and Aboriginal people were opposed to education and progress. Officials, in fact, characterized this resistance as proof of indigenous backwardness, superstition, and savagery, rather than as an understandable reaction to being parted from their children and having their parental authority undermined. Such reasoning by officials became even further justification for removing indigenous children from such allegedly primitive environments. In reality, many indigenous families did not oppose Western-style education. They simply wanted schooling that did not involve the removal of their children. 
John Grass, a Lakota leader, explained, it will not cost so much to give us schools at home on our own lands, and it will be better for our children and our people. You now educate our children in the East and fit them for your life full of civilization, and then send them back to us who have no civilization. You spend a great deal of money and make our people very unhappy. Indeed, if education had been the sole aim of American and Australian policies, it could have been accomplished without the strife and expense generated by state authorities' efforts to cajole, trick, bribe, starve, or physically force indigenous people to relinquish their children. The establishment of more day schools within Indian and Aboriginal communities would have sufficed. Why then did these governments devise such draconian policies for indigenous children? In common, government authorities in both the United States and Australia represented their efforts as benevolent policies designed to rescue and protect indigenous children. An official in New South Wales asserted, these black children must be rescued from danger to themselves. Commissioner of Indian Affairs Thomas Morgan characterized the Indian boarding schools as rescuing the children and youth from barbarism or savagery. To officials with such beliefs, it was not enough to establish schools within indigenous communities. They insisted that removing children was essential to their program. One American authority declared, the greatest difficulty is experienced in freeing the children attending day schools from the language and habits of their untutored and oftentimes savage parents. When they return to their homes at night and on Saturdays and Sundays and are among their old surroundings, they relapse more or less into their former moral and mental stupor. Such contemptuous sentiments reflected the racial logic of the time that equated indigeneity with backwardness, savagery, and heathenism. Ultimately, I came to believe that beneath the benevolent rhetoric most authorities in both nations viewed the persistence of indigenous peoples as a problem that prevented their nations from becoming fully modern and in their view, civilized. Neither nation believed that indigenous people could maintain their cultures, ways of life, or claims to land. Such persistence, they believed, would prevent widespread European settlement the development of a modern industrialized economy, and the complete sovereignty of each government over the territory it claimed. Each nation thus sought to eliminate indigeneity in one way or another. In the early 20th century, most Australian officials articulated and embraced an explicit white Australia policy that barred immigrants from Asian countries and aim to biologically absorb its aboriginal population. Through encouraging marriages and sexual relationships between part aboriginal women and white men, officials such as Western Australia Chief Protector of Aborigines, Aber Neville, sought to eventually, as he put it, breed out the color of aboriginal people. As seen in this graphic from Neville's book, 
Authorities believe that such biological absorption would make Aboriginal people indistinguishable in appearance from the white settler population and thus would solve the so-called Aboriginal problem. I'm not sure you can see from very far back, but um, the woman on the far right of the screen is a uh, person identified as half-blood uh, with a Irish-Australian father and a full-blood Aboriginal mother. The girl next to her is supposed to be her daughter, who is identified as a quadroon, with a father Australian born of Scottish parents and the mother on the right. And the third figure, the little boy on the far left, is what is called uh, by Neville, an octoroon grandson, father Australian of Irish descent, mother number two. By showing this graphic in his book, Neville tried to show that it would be a simple matter uh, to so-called breed out the color of Aboriginal people. Although they were not so explicit as Australian officials, many lawmakers in the United States also envisioned America as a white nation. Many had supported policies to restrict immigration and naturalization of those migrants deemed non-white, and many countenanced the rise of segregation and Jim Crow legislation. To solve the so-called Indian problem, that is to make Indians indistinguishable from white settlers, most policymakers initially proposed cultural assimilation rather than biological absorption. As Richard Henry Pratt put it in a speech to the Board of Indian Commissioners in 1889, I say that if we take a dozen young Indians and place one in each American family, taking those so young they have not learned to talk, and train them up as children of those families, I defy you to find any Indian in them when they are grown. Color amounts to nothing. The fact that they are born Indians does not amount to anything. Thus, officials like Pratt argued that removing Indian children was essential to whitening them and resolving the Indian problem. Increasingly, however, in the early 20th century, many American authorities were espousing the view that Indians were inherently inferior to white Americans. One authority declared that race differences are not eliminated in any appreciable number of generations, be the education what it may. And therefore, for economic reasons, primitive man must be trained in vocations that fit him for life in the white man's world. The growing popularity of this view meant that most institutions for indigenous children never extended a well-rounded education to their wards. In Australia, authorities had never maintained any pretense that they sought to fully educate Aboriginal children. In the United States, some idealistic reformers, such as Pratt, had originally envisioned the boarding schools as extending a high-quality classical education to Indian children. Yet by the early 1900s, most authorities asserted that Indian children were capable of only a rudimentary education and eventual employment in a low-skilled occupation. In fact, both American and Australian institutions became vocational schools that trained indigenous girls to become primarily domestic servants and indigenous boys to take up manual labor. Australian missions and homes routinely apprenticed 
their trainees out to white families, while many Indian boarding schools adopted Pratt's outing program that placed Indian children as field hands and servants within white households. On both sides of the Pacific, authorities explained their training programs in terms of making indigenous people useful. In a typical comment, Sir Baldwin Spencer of Australia declared, Aboriginal children of a school-going age should be taken from the camps and taught to become useful members of society. The newly trained children would fill crucial labor needs in their growing national economies. According to the Carlisle Indian School newspaper, so great is the demand for the Indian boys and girls that more than twice as many applications for pupils as can be supplied are received. Thus, the removal and institutionalization of indigenous children killed two birds with one stone. It resolved the problem of the persistence of indigenous people by making indigenous children useful while fulfilling a need among white families for cheap labor. Contrary to the benevolent rhetoric, however, it did not prepare indigenous children to assume equal status and citizenship with the white colonists of their countries. Perhaps the most crucial goal of the nation builders in each country was to gain complete control over each nation's land mass. Authorities looked to indigenous child removal in part to help them achieve this objective as well. Most American settlers and even some humanitarian reformers regarded American Indian retention of any land as thwarting the nation's ultimate development. American reformer Lyman Abbott told the Lake Mohonk New York Conference, Indian people have no right to hold a continent and keep at bay a race able to people it and provide the happy homes of civilization. We do owe the Indians sacred rights and obligations, but one of those duties is not the right to let them hold forever the land they did not occupy and which they were not making fruitful for themselves or others. American authorities garnered more land from Indian reservations through the 1887 Dawes Act, which broke up tribal lands and allotted each Indian male head of household 160 acres of land. After the allotment of all reservation lands, the remaining surplus reverted to the federal government for sale. All told, Indian people lost about 90 million acres in this period. Meanwhile, across the Pacific, white Australians had secured title to virtually all the land on the continent. Still, authorities sought to undermine remaining indigenous land ownership. In New South Wales, where Aboriginal people held just 26,000 acres of their original land, the state took back half of this land between 1911 and 1927. Child removal worked in tandem with these policies to divest indigenous peoples of their lands. Authorities recognized that disconnecting children from both their group identities and traditional land associations would make it nearly impossible for indigenous peoples to maintain their long historical association with a particular area and therefore their ability to make claims to specific territories and lands. 
Indigenous child removal benefited authorities in one final way in their quest to build unified modern nations. It served to pacify any remaining military resistance to colonization. Assimilation policy, in fact, arose in the midst of the 19th century Indian Wars on the Great Plains, and reformers and officials regarded child removal as a means to prevent further resistance from Indian peoples. The Commissioner of Indian Affairs expressly ordered Pratt to obtain children from two reservations with so-called hostile Indians, the Spotted Tail and Red Cloud agencies, saying that the children, if brought east, would become hostages for good tribal behavior. In Australia, Aboriginal families who protested their children's exclusion from public school or petitioned against the revocation of their land were more likely to have their children removed. Clearly, despite Australian and American authorities' attempts to characterize their policies as caring programs to rescue Aboriginal and Indian children, other more primary concerns motivated policymakers to resort to these drastic measures. They sought to entrench control over indigenous lands and peoples in order to build ethnically homogenous and modern settler nations. And they endeavored to absorb indigenous people into the modern economy, at least at its margins. Each nation's requirement that indigenous children be removed from their families and communities made the Indian boarding schools and homes and missions for Aboriginal children in Australia instruments of violence, punishment, and control, and in fact, often more effective ones than military tactics alone. Indigenous child removal functioned thus not as a benign alternative to the earlier policies of military subjugation, but as a much more nuanced weapon in the arsenal of administrators as they sought to complete the colonization of indigenous peoples. Thus, although the gun battles waged over indigenous land may have ceased by the late 19th century, a more insidious battle continued, a battle for a prize every bit as precious and crucial to indigenous survival, a battle for the children. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret, for this great talk. And now we have a few minutes uh, for questions and answers before we go to the reception in the Regency Room. So um, please use the microphone here in the center um, if you have questions. I don't think it's on. <laughs> While we're getting the mic fixed. Um, now? Yes. Okay. Thanks, Thank Amelia. you, Margaret. Um, in one of your first um, slides, there's uh, a little note that says eye disease, and I want to know if you did any work on diseases be that came along with these removals, and what you didn't, um, you didn't explain what that eye disease mm -hmm. was, so if you could also talk. Sure. Um, 
One of the issues that was particularly appalling and alarming to a lot of indigenous families was that when their children were brought to the schools or missions or homes, uh, that these institutions really fostered uh, the widespread uh, of disease. Um, and trachoma was one of the problems that a lot of uh, Indian children faced, um, as well as Aboriginal children, which is a, a very serious eye disease. Um, another killer in uh, Indian boarding schools and Aboriginal institutions was tuberculosis. Um, so this became yet another reason that many indigenous peoples did not want to send their children to school. These uh, became sort of vectors of, of disease and mort high mortality rates. Um, so it, I do do a little bit in the book on that, but many more um, other historians have done a lot more on that. Hi, Margaret. Thanks for that. I actually have two questions. One, if you can talk a little bit about the industrial school model, and I think it's very interesting because of the fact that even though a lot of people may not have noticed it, that Hampton Institute, which is an African-American school, was part of that experiment. And, and how do you see that rhetoric working um, across ideas about race, and particularly with respect to Native American peoples. And then the second thing that I thought was interesting was the use of the language of octoroon and, and mm -hmm. um, quadroon also in um, Australia. And what do you make of the different ways that they're thinking about race? And if you can say a little bit more. Oh, and the last thing. Um, sorry. <laughs> I, I brought up my pad. She knows me, so she's yeah. allowed to. <laughs> um, women, white women, can you talk a little bit? I mean, that's more in your book, but their role in this removal process. Thanks. Thanks, Jeanette, my beloved colleague. <laughs> um, first, the industrial school model. Indeed, uh, Jeanette mentioned the Hampton Institute, and Hampton actually preceded Carlisle. Uh, it was um, a school that had been opened for newly freed blacks. It was an industrial school that was meant to teach them sort of how to be useful um, as well. Um, and it was run by uh, General Samuel Chapman Armstrong, who had a close relationship with Richard Henry Pratt. And when Pratt had a number of prisoners of war uh, to be rehabilitated, he uh, arranged with Armstrong to send several of these prisoners uh, to Hampton to be educated in what he thought of as an experiment. And eventually, Pratt became convinced that this experiment was really useful and, and uh, would work uh, on all Indian children. So Hampton, for a number of years, had uh, many Indian people coming as well as uh, African Americans. In fact, many Indian children from Nebraska, lots of Omaha and Winnebago children, went to Hampton. Um, and interestingly, uh, there was an attempt to segregate Indian children from African American children at Hampton. Um, but that, that was kind of a losing battle because there was a lot of interaction between them. The issue of the terms quadroon and octoroon are really interesting because in Australia they called Aboriginal people black. Um, and they, um, Australians who uh, read up about race in the United States rarely read much about Indian people. They weren't that interested in Indian people. They were really interested in US policies and debates and issues about blacks and African Americans. So they often used many of the same terms um, that Americans used uh, 
octoroon, quadroon, etc. But they had a really different attitude. This whole this whole notion of breeding out the color was very different from uh, a white Southern American notion of one drop of black blood made you black. Um, so. Australian racial politics are incredibly interesting and divergent from other places in the world. One thing I should note about that, though, is that um, Australian authorities never envisioned this biological absorption to take place by so-called breeding um, Aboriginal men with white women. They only envisioned it the other way around. and so. I want to thank Jeanette for uh, bringing up the issue of women because the book really is a lot about women. And um, there's so much background to tell you um, before I can get to the subject of women. So I didn't want to talk a lot about women today, but I, I will mention that in this period, many white women uh, in both countries were really agitating for a greater public role. And at the same time, many of these women came from religious backgrounds or reform backgrounds uh, that really um, influenced them and made them want to be helping uh, to people who they saw as disadvantaged and, and lacking rights. So many white women got very involved in Aboriginal politics and rights movements and Indian uh, reform movements as well. And I write about how they, in, in fact, become kind of ensnared in these government policies in this period um, they see themselves as, as uh, having a special role to play as mothers that can really help uh, indigenous people and indigenous children. And they see a role for themselves in institutions where they can be almost like surrogate mothers to the removed children. Um, and they don't always uh, uphold or honor the rights of indigenous women and families to uh, keep their children. So I found it a great sort of paradox that these white women who were basing their own activism, their own activity outside the home on their role as mothers would undermine indigenous women's mothering. So that's a kind of thread that goes throughout the book. So more questions? Thank you, Margaret. Thanks, Ellen. Um, in passing, at the very beginning of your talk, you mentioned that this book that has, um, that is the, the focus of your recent and great honor, this book represented the, a decade of work, mm -hmm. of focused, uh, uh, prolonged work. So tell me two things. What, what is it like to spend a decade focused <laughs> on the, a culminating work? But also, how does that work in the in the more immediate uh, economy of, of academic life, of faculty life? What do you mean by that? <laughs> I don't know. Um, does the world we've built for faculty um, reward, encourage, focused, long-term focused work that mm -hmm. culminates in something very important? Or is it a more, or is it balanced with? <laughs> Well, uh, that's really nice, because I probably just got fired. So. No, seriously, th th this, is a matter, this is a matter of considerable interest for all of us. And I think 
relates to things that all of us care about. So I'm, I'm being neutral in my question. Uh -huh. um, do we have a culture of faculty life that, uh, that allows you or encourages you, welcomes you, nurtures you while you do this kind of work? Well, thanks for that question. Um, it did take a decade, and, and mainly it took a decade because as a faculty member, there are lots of other things that I do besides work on this book. Um, and I was raising two children, and uh, life was complicated. And uh, probably if you know, I'd had a really great you know, stipend uh, fellowship for two or three years, I may have gotten it done much quicker. Um, but yeah, you raise a really good issue here about um, whether our structure makes it possible for us to do this type of work. And maybe it's not coincidental that this was not the first book I wrote. Um, and it would have been much harder to do this book to get tenure, for example, or, um, uh, so it's, it is um, hard uh, to sustain one's uh, work on this, something like this, a long project like this over time, but um, it really is rewarding um, to do this. Uh, so it's a good question. I'm not sure. I mean, there might be other audience members who want to take this up. So. <laughs> other questions? Can I ask you one question? Yes. Margaret, I'm, I'm curious to what happened if you have researched what happened to these kids after they uh, left schools, have, uh, have they reintegrated in their native cultures, the majority of them, or have they been, or they were absorbed in the, in the white culture? Have mm -hmm. you researched this topic? Mm -hmm. uh, thanks for the question. Um, and yes, I have researched this a bit. Uh, it's different from, for Australia and the United States. Um, what was different in the Indian boarding schools, uh, oppressive as they could be, they ultimately thought what they were doing was training children and sending them back eventually to their reservations where they were supposed to, quote, uplift uh, the rest of the members of their communities. So a lot of Indian children did return home eventually. Things weren't always so uh, smooth and easy, though, and um, there were lots of really heartbreaking um, passages and things I came across. For example, um, I tell the story of one Navajo child who returns and his family, he doesn't recognize his father, he doesn't recognize a lot of his relatives, he doesn't speak Navajo anymore. But the Navajos uh, do a ceremony for him called the Blessing Way ceremony, which is meant to um, kind of heal him because they talked about, they did Blessing Way ceremonies for all the children who came home because they felt that they'd been traumatized, they'd, they'd lost something, and there was a, a kind of ritual to cleanse them um, and reintegrate them into the group. Australia is a very different situation because in that context, authorities truly did want to permanently remove children from their families and communities, and they did want them to permanently um, be absorbed into the community. Um, so some children, like Margaret Tucker, uh, over time do manage to go back um, and, and she finds her mother. And there is an organization that's been going on since the 1980s called Link Up in Australia that tries to help Aboriginal people find their families and reconnect with them. But sometimes people don't reconnect with parents, uh, aunts, 
uncles, grandparents for 20, 30 years. Um, sometimes they never meet their uh, natal families. Um, and a lot of authorities told Australian children that their parents had abandoned them, that you know, your mom was a drunk, she didn't love you, that's why you're here. So a lot of, um, there's a lot of incredible tension, anger, frustration um, that resulted from these policies. <laughs> uh, ooh, okay. Uh, my name is Sloan Cornelius, and my question is, you talked a little earlier about how the mothers in the schools, they had seen themselves as mothers, but in fact kind of disparaged these Native kids. And just to answer a little bit of that question that you had asked, um, a lot of those past kids, they did go through a lot of emotional trauma, but as an indigenous person, Ogla Lakota, we still happen to see that emotional trauma happening today, a lot of intergenerational trauma, and so we still continuously suffer from that problem. Mm -hmm. And so I guess my question to tie in with that is, when you have these people who disparage Native kids, how do you find a mirror in that with today's academic setting? Mm -hmm. As an indigenous person, you, um, it's still the same thing, it's different, but it's still the same in many mm -hmm. ways. So how do you see that mirroring what happened then with now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, thanks for bringing that up. And you are absolutely right that um, this caused a lot of intergenerational um, trauma. And we're still seeing the legacies of that today. Um, one thing that many um, late 20th century Native American women activists have said is that um, a lot of their communities, they, children don't learn how to parent. If they're sent to an institution when they're very young, they never learn what it's like to grow up uh, with a parent. They never have a model for how to uh, do that. And so it has a, a long-term legacy that I, I think we're still seeing today. Um, forgot the second part of your question. Oh, Mirroring, yes, mirroring uh, in the ac academy. I've thought about that a lot. I've thought about how, you know, I would love, I would just love to have tons of Native American students at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Um, I think, you know, that'd be just a wonderful thing. Um, but on the other hand, I worry, you know, is the academy, is uh, the university a, a hospitable place? for Indian students. Um, do we have such a rigid notion of what is the right way to educate people and the right curriculum for people? Do we honor indigenous histories and people? Um, have we created a space in which indigenous people can um, bring to the table the rich past the rich histories, the rich cultures that they have, and, and be honored here. So um, I think that's a really good question, because I, I think sometimes we as an institution, I'm thinking of the University of Nebraska, we really need to think about how can we create a, a place for uh, indigenous peoples in Nebraska and, and the region to come here and not have that kind of top-down assimilated type of education 
um, but, but something that really honors their presence and their past and their experience. So I really thank you for that question. Okay. Margaret's going to stay around um, in the Regency Room for the reception. So please, if you have more questions, talk to her and join me now in thanking her again for this great talk. Thank you.